And now a word from our sponsors at Betterment. If you're listening to my show, you're looking for tips on how to work smarter, not harder. And let's be real, you're already working hard to earn your money, but how do you make sure that your money is working hard for you? Here's how. With a Betterment Automated Investment and Savings app, your money will go to work. They've got technology that will provide you with advanced tools, and they're built to help maximize your returns, not to mention your time. They have expert-built portfolios of low-cost exchange-traded funds. You know I love those exchange-traded funds. There's automated investing technology, and as part of that, automated rebalancing. Many of you have been asking about rebalancing, and it sort of feels like a hard thing to do on your own. With Betterment, easy peasy. They do it for you. Visit Betterment.com to get started. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk, Performance is not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. With Fidelity Wealth Management, a dedicated advisor can work with you on a comprehensive plan to help you reach your wealth's full potential. Plus, you'll have access to specialists in estate planning strategies. So you're not just growing and protecting your wealth, you're sharing it. More at fidelity.com slash wealth. Investment minimums apply. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. Welcome to the Jill on Money podcast. It is Saturday, January 9th. And oh, brother, we got a rotten employment report. The Labor Department said the U.S. economy lost 140,000 jobs. The unemployment rate remained at 6.7%, but that wasn't really the big story. The big story is we knew that as the pace of this virus was spreading and picking up throughout the end of the year, there were going to be significant impacts on the economy. This is the most startling of all of the statistics that we've seen, because after losing 22 million jobs between March and April and starting to claw so many of those back, nearly 12 million or so have come back online. Now we move into the losing column again. It's just a bummer. Anyway, for the year, it appears that this virus has wiped out about 9.8 million positions. I'm sure they'll come back throughout this year, but man, it's a bummer. And this is impacting some of you directly, some of your friends, your families. And for that, I'm very sorry. It is, of course, the time when a lot of people are reflecting on what they do want to do with their lives, with their careers. A new year turns the page over. And that's why I think for this weekend, I'm so delighted to bring on my friend, Christine Dercole, who is a big time, super famous instructor at Peloton. Now, I met Christine years ago, probably almost 20 years ago, when she was an instructor at my local health club. And I just have watched her career move exponentially in different directions. And in these two episodes that you'll hear this weekend, you'll hear the story of a woman who took a really interesting journey to land where she is, which is essentially a top of the fitness world. So I hope you enjoy it. Here is part one of my interview with Peloton instructor and my pal, Christine Dercole. Okay, so tell me what was Christine like as a girl growing up in Pennsylvania? Oh gosh, Christine couldn't sit still. I wanted to be a dancer. I was inspired by the ballet and 
after I saw the first performance, I guess, I think it was, it was the Nutcracker for sure. I remember just sitting there on the edge of my seat watching the Arabian Queen and being so wrapped up in not just the beautiful movement, but the storytelling that was happening, that I was understanding the story through movement. And that really, I couldn't identify it as that at age five. <laughs> it was just really pretty. But it got me. It got me right in my guts. And um, so my early life in Pennsylvania was dance classes, art classes, clarinet lessons, marching band, parents driving me everywhere, completely supporting anything that I dreamed of. I got very, very much into dance, so much so that when I discovered why they wouldn't put me in any of the performances where the costume had a short tutu was because I was bigger than the other girls. Specifically, my thighs were like twice the size, at least from the perspective that they made me think. Because I recently visited my mom in Maine and dug out lots of old photographs. And I'm like, I was not that much bigger than the other girls. I mean, I definitely was bigger, but... It was. It's just profound how the world of ballet, the world of dance, can really change how you see yourself and really create that dysmorphia. So, what happened? Did you decide to give up dancing? Well, it's you know, it's kind of still a long, ongoing journey. I, um, I, sh I when I quit dancing, I went to acting and I auditioned for uh, the Performing Arts High School in Philadelphia. And I thought, you know, acting is the way. Act, you can act at any size, any age, any shape. And so this is perfect. And I still get to be on stage and I still get to storytell, potentially stories that are inspiring and stories that have the capacity to change how someone thinks about themselves and their life. So then I go to that high school, then I get into Carnegie Mellon, and I think, okay, this is it. I know I'm on the right path. If I got into this school, I am definitely doing what I've meant to be doing with my life, which I have to say from a young age, I always knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to do it wholeheartedly and completely passionately. So I go to Carnegie, and during my time there, I saw an audition, an audition sheet, a review sheet of my audition, and um, it said a lot of nice things about my monologues, but then there was a note that said, she's a little heavy in the thigh. It broke me. It really, like, it's amazing. And this is the, in the work that I do now, which is about the power of words and self-talk and the story we tell ourselves, that story here I am at what, like 17, 18, 19 at this point. And again, I'm too big. I, I just like, don't even know how am I supposed to get around myself without hurting myself again? Because near the end of that dancing period of time, I would do anything by any means necessary to make myself smaller. And I moved past that, but then it roared its ugly head again. And it was very, very painful. And I really, you know, had a, a big wave of self-doubt. What am I doing here? But I finished. I finished after taking a year off 
And during that year off, I came to New York City. I'd always really loved to ride my my bike, my old Schwinn, and I brought my bike to the city. I figured I'm not, I'm not, I'm just not going to take the subway. I'm going to learn the city above ground, and I'm just going to ride my bike everywhere. I needed a job. There was an ad for bike messengers, and it said all you need is a bike and a lock and a bag, no experience necessary. I thought, oh, cool. I'll go see if that can be my job. So I go in, they ask me, do you know how to get to the Empire State Building? And I point in obviously the wrong direction. (laughs) And they're like, here's a map, here's a beeper, go. And this is in the day when they would page me and then I'd have to go find a payphone and I'd have to have quarters to call to then, and then write down on a piece of paper on a clipboard where I was going to go and where, where I was picking up the package and where it was going to go. I mean, what a it was a messy, messy job in the snow, in the rain, and then the phone would eat your quarters. It was really rough. Wait, was this after college or did you just say screw it and just move to New York City? Well, this was a year off from college. So I had very full intention of going back. I always knew I was going to go back if they would have me. (laughs) I was very clear. I still wanted to act. I just needed a break. I was in a terrible depression. Riding the bike for eight hours a day pulled me out of the depression. Movement was the key. So you're in New York City. You're a bike messenger. Are you still pursuing acting? Yes. I got an agent right away. I I was very, very proud of that, that I immediately had an agent. And uh, so I'm auditioning, but I'm auditioning between runs as a messenger. So I'm wearing a skirt or a dress folded up under my jacket over my bike shorts. And I would lock up my bike. I would hop into an audition. And sadly, though, you had to wait a lot. And I ended up being very, very late with a lot of packages. It was always, quote unquote, getting a flat they're like, where are you? I got a flat when I was actually at a Shakespeare audition. So I'd run up, like try to get the grease out from under my nails, put on some lipstick in an elevator, take off my helmet, shove it in the bag, go whip out some Lady Macbeth, get back on the bike and finish delivering the package. I was trying to find a way to make it work, but I couldn't get cast. I don't know. I'm a bad auditioner. I didn't look the part. Here's the thing. I never played my age. I always played like the Lady Macbeth or the Renievskaya or the older character, the Grand Dame or the Diva. And at 23, you're the ingenue. And if you don't look like the ingenue, then you're not going to get cast. So I went back to my agent and I said, I'm really not sure what I'm doing wrong. And they said, you might not get cast for 10 years, but you just, you keep at it. I said, what? I, 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 wait, I, I have things to do. Like, And at the same time, I had become very close with a bunch of messengers, some of whom were cyclists who raced. And, you know, at the end of many of these days of messengering, we would ride home, a bunch of us through Central Park, and somebody would say sprint, and we would go, and I won a lot of those sprints. And He said, you know, you really should think about racing. And one of them rode a fixed gear bike, which is what we race on the velodrome. And he let me try it. And I, like something completely changed inside of me the first time I got on that kind of bike. It's a completely different experience because you cannot coast. 
it's fixed to the wheel. So you are completely committed to the momentum of the spike and you have to control it with the pressure in your legs by either pushing to make it go faster or floating the pedals to maintain speed or resisting that momentum to slow yourself down. So a fixed gear bicycle sounds pretty dangerous. Any fear when you hopped on that fixed gear? I will tell you that I am a lot afraid often and I can't tolerate sitting in fear. Facing that fear, conquering that fear is the only antidote. And every single time a new season comes around and I get on that track again, I always have this moment like, whoa, how did I get here? How? Who am I? <laughs> like, what am I doing? This is nuts. And I love it. It's like an itch. I have to scratch it and get over it. Okay, let's fast forward. When did you start your life at Peloton? I came to Peloton after having teaching. Oh my gosh, I don't, I don't even know the math anymore how many years I've been teaching at that point and several different places in 2014 in the fall. I think I was the, don't quote me, eighth, ninth, tenth instructor. Peloton had just opened the studio on 23rd Street in Chelsea in May of 2014. You were an extremely successful spin instructor in New York City. What made you take the leap to Peloton? Well, I actually needed a change from where I had been working previously. It was a little bit of a, a, a forced fit. And I, I just knew I needed something different. And um, I was looking around two years earlier while in Montauk, walking my dog on the beach, I met this woman walking her dog. She used to take my class where I used to teach then. And she sent me a Facebook message saying that her son was working on a new cycling studio and that I should go audition. And at the time in 2012, I was like, I'm not moving anywhere. I'm good. I'm set. 2014 comes and I'm like, I need a change. Let me revisit that conversation. And I reached out and I researched and I had friends who had the Peloton very early on. First thing I thought, I took Jen Sherman's class and I said, this is really interesting, but I don't know if I want my classes recorded. Like what if I say something wrong and I don't want my butt in the mirror? <laughs> like those were my first thoughts. But then I, I look past that and I got some conversations and I got to talk to John Foley and I really advocated for myself. I saw that there was such a range of teaching styles that Peloton was not trying to create one style of instructor and make like McDonald's. Like there's one thing, you know what you're getting and everybody does the same thing. They allowed all of these different voices and all of these different personalities and ways of inspiring because everybody's affected by something different. They allowed all of these different voices to coexist. And I thought, I think there's room for me here. They didn't have someone at that time who was a cyclist. And I had a background, as you know, of teaching cycling for so long. And I was a master instructor for Schwinn and I had traveled through the United States and Brazil teaching teachers how to teach. And I thought, and with my racing background, I, I thought, I, th I think I have a lot to offer you. And they said, okay, yeah, the rest is history. Here I am. 
Okay, now this was a great first part, but tomorrow, part two of our interview with Christine Dare Cole. If you have a financial question, then just send us an email, ask Jill at jillonmoney.com. And as we always say, wash your hands, wear your masks, maintain your physical distancing. And as Christine Dare Cole of Peloton likes to say, put your hands metaphorically on someone's back. Talk to you tomorrow. Tomorrow.